Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Blitz. Oh, Hoove is in his happy place. Anytime we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about today on Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, happy guy. This is Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, Hooves Bliss Edition, brought to you by the Midgey CEC Theaters. Well, since he already introduced who I am, that's Dave Brooks. Yeah, and I'm Joel Hoover. Yeah, he's got the finger windows going up over there. It's like a taking a picture, a face of a happy guy. Well, I'm, I'm a happy guy when we get to talk about... Probably my favorite director, so I'm I'm really excited about that today, especially since he has a movie that's coming out next week from when we are recording this. Hey, you, that's making this a pretty good time. Yeah, it's making it a really good time. Yeah, so we have talked about individual directors before. We're doing it again today, and we'll tell you more. You could probably guess who it is already. We've already teased it a couple episodes ago, so yeah. we're talking... Christopher Nolan. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we have given a little bit of a teaser on that. So, yeah, after we've talked Spielberg, we've talked Tarantino. Today we're talking Christopher Nolan, some big-time directors, and he is among them in the modern day. So we'll get into that coming up. But first, we've got several talking points to explore today. There's one that is very, very immediate as far as we are recording this on Wednesday, July the 12th, and we are heading toward midnight on a possible second strike going on in Hollywood, Dave. By the time at the time we're recording this, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to start tonight if it starts. So they could avoid it at the last minute. Uh, the podcast probably won't get posted until Thursday tomorrow in our time. So this is going to be decided probably by the time this gets posted. So this will be an example of great moments and bad timing because by the time, well, it's not happened yet. And by the time this gets posted, it could be underway. So this is going to be uh, interesting. And if this happens, the writer's strike is one thing. It'll slow things down. But if they already had a completed script, they can move forward. But if you've got an actor that works with a guild, they're going to walk off the set. And I mean, at the moment that this strike happens and don't let reality TV fool you. A lot of those people that are there are actors. The pizza guy, that's not a real pizza guy, that's an actor. Um, they're going to walk off the set if they're guild members as well. This will shut down Hollywood, and I mean tonight, if it happens. The actors have reportedly agreed to a federal mediation. This is about as 11th hour as it gets. So they are going to presumably have one final discussion that's going to take place. But, yeah, it could be on the strike, on the picket line. By midnight, if it doesn't get resolved and taken care of, you know this between the directors, they got their thing figured out. But the writers, and we're about to find out about the actors. Um, Hollywood's got to figure out their accounting. It can't just go to the executives. End of story. It, they've got a long, long history of very creative uh, accounting math that uh, it goes to those people in those gilded castles. And this is not for the people that make $20 million a film. Uh, of course, it's going to help them too, but this is for the third police officer on the left on those uh, you know CSI episodes. This is for the person that makes scale. The middle and lower class in particular, this is much more 
of an important thing. This is 99% of the actors that are out there that this is going to affect, hopefully in a positive way. Uh, you, you just got to pay them is what it comes down to. But there are A-listers who are really putting a lot of backing into this. Now, you'll see some big names floated around out there. But, yeah, it's important to note, just like you said, Dave, that this is about actors on the whole here. We're not necessarily talking about the creme de la creme, the ones who make the most at the top. This is an all-encompassing kind of thing that especially focuses on those who are at the lower or even middle end of the pay scale. Yeah, this is, uh, and I know several actors that, I mean, they're just random people that you wouldn't know. They're showing up mostly in commercials and blah, 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 but they don't make that much. They're not making Harrison Ford money. Uh, so they do need to get a living wage, and that's largely what this is about, and streaming rights and how people are going to get their residuals. And it, it gets down the rabbit hole. We don't have to go too down it, but uh, this is going to come down to the wire uh, as the time we're recording it. it hasn't happened yet, but the time that gets posted Thursday, day, I think we're going to know. So this won't be a well-timed out thing to pass along, but here it comes. Yeah, we're saying it as it is right now for when we're recording. Speaking of Harrison Ford, how are things at the box office, including with Indiana Jones, which you have been to see with Dial of Destiny? I have seen it. I will say nothing about it. I know you haven't yet, and I'm not into giving spoilers, so I will say nothing. I will say I enjoyed it, but I get why people are, man, I get that too, but I liked it. Uh, It's doing okay, but not great. And this was an expensive movie to make. I mean, people are estimating it could have cost like $300 million to do it, and that's before marketing. Uh, so they're not likely going to make their box office back. This could be a big problem for Disney. Uh, this could be a big problem for Lucasfilm. So we've had some Star Wars problems and uh, now Indiana Jones problems. We'll see what this is going to lead to. Uh, Insidious, the Red Door, just beat it this past weekend at the box office, but Indy did take number one before. And it's not a bad movie. I, I recommend I enjoyed it. Um, some of the problems for the last one fixed. Some other problems that are new are there. Um, I won't go into it. Um, some some point off camera, I guess, or off microphone when everyone has seen it, we'll talk more freely. But sure. I, it was entertaining, and that's all that really matters. As of the time of recording, just over $250 million pulled in worldwide on the movie. We have some big releases that are coming the next couple of weekends that are going to maybe cut into that by quite a bit. Starting with this coming weekend, I just got brushed up on the last two movies to get ready for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is getting terrific buzz that's coming along. Prepare yourselves because you did hear Part 1. Part 2 is coming out next June, late June, I think, 4th of July weekend. And so I'm pretty sure this one's going to end in a cliffhanger. Whatever the big thing is, and obviously we haven't seen it yet, uh, I imagine Tom Cruise and uh, Ferguson and uh, and Alice Pegg and Simon Pegg, Simon yep. Peg, they're all going to be literally hanging from a cliff, you know, the bad guy about to leave them to their death because this is probably going to end in Ving a... Ving Rhames Yeah, as well. in an yep. unresolved ending. Uh, so stay tuned. Be prepared. This is not going to have an ending ending that comes next summer. Yeah, I'm excited, though. I mean, just watching back the last two yeah. movies has definitely set the stage for me to go and see it here this weekend, which I'm planning to do. I think I am, too. Yeah, with that that core four that you described there, Tom Cruise, Rebecca Ferguson, Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames, they're all back. Haley Atwell's no, uh, Haley yeah, Atwell in this one. added into the cast for this one, too. This yeah. going to be good. It's got amazing reviews, and uh, I will know more about that this weekend. And apparently the stunts, as usual... Fantastic. I mean, that's what these Mission Impossible movies have really leaned into has been great stunts, but also really 
compelling popcorn flick storytelling that they've yeah, done. Yeah, they've really found a way to do this well. Uh, I I hear the same thing from people. You're going to go see your mission? I don't know. I don't really like Tom Cruise. I don't really love him either, but the man knows how to make good movies. Top Gun good Maverick was movies. great. Yeah. Well, just good movies. I mean, it's some of the drama stuff he's done. If you haven't ever seen Collateral, go see it. It's a great Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx movie. Whether you like him or not, it's a good movie. Uh, and clearly the Mission Impossible movies, particularly from the third one on, uh, are and they just seem to be getting better from the third one on. So go see Dead Reckoning Part 1, and uh, don't spoil it because there's going to be Part 2 coming June of 2024. Next weekend. This will we, be an interesting one. Yes, we set this up a little bit way back when, when we recorded <laughs> the episode previewing the summer, and we talked about how there was a really unique date on the calendar where there were two major features being released the same weekend, and they could not be more polar opposite. You have Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig, that's going to be in all kinds of splash and color and fun. And then you have Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan, which is going to dig into the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who created the atomic bomb. And they they just could not be more polar opposite as far as how they're going to be they're being released on the same weekend, and but that's more not bizarre. They're kind of teaming up in a way. Yes, because a lot of people are planning <laughs> to do the Barbenheimer double feature. Dave, could you imagine going? Which one do you see first? Maybe I, I hear. Obviously, we haven't seen either of them yet. I hear that Oppenheimer is almost playing like a horror movie. So maybe you see that one and you just walk out shell shocked. Maybe you need Barbie to bring you a little up. You know, that's what I kind of felt would be the the direction people would go as far as what you watch first and second. I've talked to some people who've said I would actually do the opposite if they were doing it. If it's too sugary sweet, you need to take the edge off with something heavy, something weighty, something Oppenheimery nuclear. Well, what's remarkable is that AMC has said that more than 20,000 moviegoers have purchased tickets for both. They are doing the double feature. They are literally going to watch both movies, which for me, as somebody who appreciates Film going and going to the theater to see movies, that warms my heart. Seeing that people are willing to do that in one weekend for two movies like that, I'm sure that the theaters themselves are elated. And even people associated with the movies have encouraged people to go. Tom Cruise, whose own movie is going to be up against them next weekend after his releases this weekend, he has encouraged people to go and do that. You like, know, it's, liking it's great. Is, if you build it, they will come. If you're going to do a good movie, they will come. I'll tell you the truth. When I heard Mattel is getting into the movie business, eh, Battleship wasn't very good. I think that might be Hasbro. Um, what are you guys doing? Well, apparently this is so self-aware, so meta, so fun, so not immune to poking fun at itself that Barbie is really getting amazing reviews. Whether you loved Barbie growing up or you think Barbie is the dumbest thing you've ever heard of, uh, whether it's a feminist appointment and she just is not realistic. Everybody is loving this movie from what the early buzz is because it's not out yet. So stay tuned. But uh, they couldn't be more opposite. They seem to be complementing one another. Even the production uh, marketing almost seems to kind of give a wink nodge to the other side, and they're both doing it. All social media has been all over it, too. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of jokes out there. There was, uh, there was like this pink mushroom cloud picture that I saw out there. I was like, oh my gosh. Well, no, some people are like, Mario movie. well, some people were going gender reveals have gotten out of control. But then, <laughs> then you've got the social media, the way they've gotten into it. And 
Christopher Nolan even said, I think for those who care about movies, we've been really waiting to have a crowded marketplace again, and now it's here, and that's terrific. He said, That's what he said. Cillian Murphy, who of course is going to be Oppenheimer, he said, I think it's great. I'll be going to see Barbie. I can't wait to see it, is what he said. Oppenheimer goes to see Ken. This will <laughs> be fun. And there's good talk about uh, Cillian's performance. Uh, it's Oscar talk. I, I bet you that's not the only category that Oppenheimer will be up for. Uh, this is going to be a good one. Before we jump into the subject, one thing we do need to remind you, spoilers are probably going to be forthcoming because we're not just talking about Oppenheimer. We're talking about all the movies that Christopher Nolan has done. That's the Dark Knight trilogy. That's Inception. That's uh, Tenet. Uh, all the way back to uh, Memento and following. And we're going to touch base on all of them. So if you're kind of meager on your having watched list involving uh, movies by Christopher Nolan, be prepared. We're going to go kind of in sequence. We're more or less going to keep the Dark Knight trilogy together. Uh, we've kind of already talked about it, so we might not go too heavy on it. But be prepared. Spoilers for the Nolan movies, short of Oppenheimer, is coming. Christopher Nolan, as we said at the start of the show, one of those happy who, <laughs> one of those big time directors in today's Hollywood landscape, who has found a way to be able to craft movies that I think hit a really really great middle ground. Dave, if you would look at a Venn diagram of artistically well put together movies and movies that do well at the box office that are really appealing to a wide audience. He has found that middle ground in that Venn diagram. And that's something that you can only really say about a certain number of directors, the the auteurs, as we kind of look at them today. I mean, we, like I said, at the start, we've talked about Steven Spielberg on this podcast before we have talked about Quentin Tarantino as well. Nolan is in that kind of category, even though it's, it, as far as awards go, he's he's had opportunities. He's kind of had near misses when it comes to like Oscars and things like this that. This could be the turning point. It I could it could be as far as him winning an Oscar. Like there've been a lot of technical awards that his movies have won. Heath but for, Ledger won for the Joker. Yeah, that's right. Some performances too. The technical side, visually, oh, yeah. there've been a lot of wins. But as far as his work, not quite as often as have there been successes there. But. He still has been extremely highly regarded with critically and commercially those two things going together. What's interesting about him, you hear him speak and you would say, oh, he's, he's British. He actually has both British and American citizenship, which, uh, which I didn't know until I was looking into more about the, about the episode today. But he got his start in the 90s. He, he kind of worked his way up and he really started – like many do, kind of on, on the ground floor with more grittier self-made projects that he had. Um, you'll hear this name perhaps a few times throughout the podcast, but his wife, Emma Thomas, is so often strongly linked in with what he's doing with his movies because she has produced on, I think, almost every movie, if not all of them, that she has been the producer for. They work in lockstep together with with his projects and what he does, and they've been extremely successful, but they... They have a lot of common threads among them, his movies, but they also they started out very small scale, very gritty, and then grew into something that has become something that you've got to see in theaters, and he really leans into that. Homemade is a good way to put these, not just from the beginning of his career. Not only does his wife, Emma Thompson, go very much lockstep, Thomas, yeah. but his brother, too, is very involved in these behind the scenes when it comes to the yeah. writing. So you got the Nolan. He's gotten his uncle on screen a few times yeah. as, a, as an actor. And that's not unheard of. That does happen. 
But um, this is a guy that has really gotten to the point where he can call his own shots. And the less studio interference he gets, the better off they go. Now, some actors and uh, some directors have you know earned that route, but they aren't the ones to trust necessarily. For the Brett Ratners, no, 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 you need to hold his hand. Spielberg is fine with this. Christopher Nolan is fine with this. Uh, I think David Fincher is fine with this. Leave them alone. Let them do their thing. They know what they're doing. And you're right. He has come up with the perfect balance. It is not made for stupid people. It's not holding your hand through it all. It's going to lay it out there and you figure it out. People are still debating the end of Inception. And they're made in such a way that they are crowd-pleasing. And he will, to a point, hold your hand, particularly a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. There's subtle things to help bring you through it. And that's not just Inception. That's all of them. Whether it's uh, Memento, showing the movie backwards. And that was only a second movie. He got the clout to do it because it didn't really matter. It was just an also-ran. But, I mean, it did so well. It didn't take long before Hollywood realized, look, just let this guy do his business and when Warner Brothers kind of crossed him when it came to the tenant issue, which we'll get into later, uh, he walked away from Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers, oh, they want him back. I mean, they really want him back, but uh, that'll be uh, Universal's game. Let me ask you a question here. Have you found any other director where you so often watch their movies and go, I've got to watch that a second time to oh, really yeah. get it all? Yeah, but every Nolan movie is like this. I'd say M. Night Shyamalan when you get the twist. Oh, sure. For better, for yeah. worse. Now I want to see it again. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes. Um, uh, oh, for the love of heavens, who directed Usual Suspects? Come on. It's right in front of my tip of, the tip of my tongue. I could see his face. Oh, do you Ryan want me to Singer. Sp- there Ryan we go. Singer. I was about I was going to go. I've got it, but of course you, you know it. But it, I was going to let you work through it. I yeah. knew I was going to get it, but it's one of those been a long day kind of things. Your vocabulary well, starts Well, especially with that movie. Yeah, that one in particular, it plays very different when you know what's coming. Um, but Nolan, every single movie, even if it doesn't have a big twist like any of the Dark Knight movies, which really generally don't have a big twist to them, they still, when you know where it's going, you almost need to see it again. There's so much there. It's so rich. But the ones with the twist, you better believe it. So you said you had watched his debut feature film. It's been a long time ago. Long time ago, yeah. I had not Once. watched it. I actually had not watched it until just a few weeks ago. I thought I had seen all of his movies, but I went back and looked, and no, I, I discovered Following, which was from 1998. Nolan was still in his 20s yeah. at the time when he made this movie. He's only like movie. 51 right now, something like that. He's younger than you think, and a huge body of work for somebody. The only person I can think of that has that impressive a body of work from that young an age is Spielberg. This is rare air. But it all started with Following, which was this black-and-white, neo-noir, independent crime movie that he made on about as lean of a budget as possible with how he put this together. Nolan himself shot the film. He's the cinematographer. He produced. He wrote it. He directed. He, like... He did just about everything with it. He didn't do his own music. There, There are very few who do. But... He his fingerprints are all over it with this this starter film. It's a, it's a super small cast, uh, a relatively small cast of of smaller scale names that you've got in there, and it's about this this guy who follows str- this, this kind of struggling failed writer who follows strangers all over London and ends up getting caught up in the world of theft. As a result, and he he ends up getting caught up in this this really big 
crime issue that then he becomes kind of attached into just by virtue of him doing what he does, innocuously just following people around, you know, nothing to see here, but then it becomes something a whole lot more than that. When you hear the term independent movie and uh, artist or uh, student film, which is kind of what this movie really comes across, a lot of the things that kind of spring to mind is, well, it's not it's rough around the edges. It's, you know, you can maybe see a rough talent there, but it needs polishing. This one had a lot of polish. When I first saw Memento, which came out, what, 2002, maybe? 2000, something? so it was 2000. two years after this. That was when, uh, there's another movie by this guy, Nolan, and we watched it then. And that was the one and only time I saw it. And that was when I saw Memento on DVD, so probably that's when I saw it for the first time. It was like, oh, two, something like that. Uh, and that's when I watched The Following. That's the one and only time I watched The Following. So that's like 20 years ago. It's been a while. But I remember watching it thinking, this is good. There's some. There's a lot here. He's going to have a good future ahead of him if he's not just one of those, you know, flame out and go. You know, and then, of course, Memento, uh, which we're going to get to here in a minute. Um, it was one of those where... I, I don't own it on uh, at home on any uh, physical media because I'm like, yeah, it was a good movie. I don't know if I'm going to go watch it again. But, I mean, if I landed on it, I'd probably watch it. But it's it's best and noteworthy because it's the beginning and already pretty good first step of what is, at that time, f- you know, really turning into an amazing career. And now you say that, like, whoa, you could see where that seed was and you could see a lot of things that are going to stretch on into – probably all the way to Oppenheimer and beyond. Even with really ground floor style filmmaking that he did with the camera work and how it was all shot, I mean, there's still a lot of polish to it, and it's just, it's very sleek. It's sleek, it's quick, it's 70 minutes long. Um, One review kind of compared it to being Hitchcock-like and yet just leaner and meaner with the way that the movie was, and that's a pretty good description of it, including the way it concludes at the end, and all on a budget of just 6,000 pounds. But it was crafted. I mean, it wasn't big, it wasn't huge, it wasn't all that long, there's not that much to it, but when you pull it apart and you watch it, you realize all that went into it. I mean, it wasn't just shot like, eh, go over there and we'll do this, you're not getting ready to go. It was crafted and they're all crafted but you see a movie like that you're like this is there's something here i mean there's a lot that you're obviously picking up on but there's a lot more here and you could already sense there's going to be more coming from this guy so following was an appetizer and it set up what when you look at nolan's career was kind of another appetizer and yet it was bigger it was bigger it was still not really in terms of uh, not really on a big studio kind of scale yet But Memento was the movie that really started to put Christopher Nolan on the map, and that came along in 2000. I think the powers behind whatever you want to call it, whether it was a studio, whether it was – he's got an impressive cast for this movie. You've got uh, Guy Pearce. You've got uh, Joe – I can never pronounce your last name, Joe, correctly. I'm sorry. Joe Pantaleano. uh, Carrie Ann Moss. Pantaleano. Pantaleano. Carrie Ann Moss, who had just come off the Matrix movie. She and Joe Pantoliano. Yeah, both of them. Both had. And this was a movie that, I mean, it kind of operated on a gimmick. You know, like, okay, this is a movie that's being shown backwards. All right. But it really worked. And the reason it's shown backwards is because Guy Pierce stars as this guy who has been uh, assaulted and his wife was murdered. And he's trying to track down his wife's murderer. Problem is, during this assault, he received a traumatic brain injury and he can't form new memories. So he can't remember anything that just happened. So to give that impression to the audience, you don't know what has just happened leading up to the scene that you're watching now because they show the scene forward, but it's shown in chunks and the chunks are in reverse order. 
But segued through all this is something that is shown in a forward way where you've got them on the phone to somebody. We're not sure who it is. And that's in black and white as well. And that's in black and white. If you watch this the first time, you better make time to watch it a second time. And I'm not really going to give it away, um, even though we do have spoilers here, but I'm not going to give that away. Uh, But there is a feature on the DVD, if you watch it on that, where you can watch, including the black and white parts and then the main chunks, they will order it in in uh, in sequential order, so it makes a little more sense. But that takes all the fun out of it. You really do lose something by going Big sequentially, something. and this movie certainly more so than following. This started to bring about one of the hallmarks of Christopher Nolan, which we'll get into those later. But as far as narrative storytelling breaking the mold on what we have come to know as being a way to tell a story. Nolan has done that time and again. And even with the way he's presented concepts uh, within movies, even those have kind of threaded off of telling a story in a way that you are not used to. And way so much so much more than just a gimmick. There's a scene in Memento where Guy Pierce is in the middle of a chase, and in mid-chase, he can't remember, is he chasing this person or is he being chased? Oh, gunfire comes his way. Okay, I'm being chased. I got to run. So, I mean, and that's a creative way to tell the story. And then, oh, it just happens to be told in reverse order. And the way it sets things up, you get somebody in one scene that just really comes off like such an angel. And then they'll show the scene that takes place just before that. And that little angel ain't such an angel. And repeat, repeat examples of that. And when you get to the twist, which even once you see it, you don't know if it's to be believed or not. The way that it is done, and you're going to see hallmarks like that leading into Inception. Well, what really happened? How did it end? I mean, even though you saw it, you didn't maybe pick up all of it. You need to watch this movie almost twice in a row. Bang, bang. Two more things, too. Um, Number one, it, it just fits perfectly. The way that he put that movie together narratively fits perfectly for Leonard Shelby and his character and the fact that he is on that short term memory loss. You are taken into that in a manner of speaking, with the way that the movie story is told. And then the second thing that comes with that is the way the movie was done, there's kind of this lull period that the movie sort of has, and I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I would say there's a bit of a lull period in the middle to middle back end of the movie where you kind of get the sense that you have figured out how this is working or how the sequentially this is working, the shock of that is kind of gone, and you also start to go, well... It feels like the movie is kind of dragging right now and slowing down a little bit. But then all of a sudden, it just it sets you up for the very end and the conclusion. And suddenly, the pieces fit back together and you're like, "No, whoa, wait a minute. And then you're going, I've got to watch the movie again. And what's, what's great was the casting that came with it, too. Did you know that... There Guy actually, Pierce is so good in everything. Guy, he, he could do a Cheerios commercial and win the Oscar for it. Well, Guy Pierce was a great choice. But did you know there was somebody else who Nolan wanted first? Before I didn't know who this. was actually slated and set up to do it, but couldn't because of scheduling conflicts. Who was it? It was Brad Pitt. I'm glad it went the way it did. Uh, it was Brad Pitt. Well, of course, now that we've seen it as it was, but I like Brad Pitt. I'm not saying anything against Brad Pitt, but I mean, whatever Guy Pierce is in, and I wish he'd be in more. I mean, whether it's um, uh, 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 I loved him. Even just showing up in Iron Man 3 was pretty good. Yes. But uh, The Crown of Monte Cristo is marvelous. Yes. He's, he's good in oh. everything. Yeah, he's got a lot of layers to the way that he performs where you're not sure, is don't he see good, is he not? And Shelby is a complicated character yeah. in this movie. Leonard's a very, very complicated character. But after Brad Pitt, 
it didn't work out and his schedule didn't work out. They wanted to go away from an A-lister, and Guy Pierce wasn't an A-lister really no, at this time. Plus, he never has been an A-lister, Nolan, but he's really appreciated. Nolan liked that he was enthusiastic about the role. But the other thing, too, is I loved that he got both Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano. Moss was first. He liked that, that she brought a lot of depth in how she had done in The Matrix, and Boy, her her layering of character, it, it comes out in a big way in this movie. But he also then liked that she recommended Joe Pantoliano and reached out to him about it, too. Because in the same way, you kind of have an impression of him already built in a little bit. And then that impression... He was one of the bad guys in the Goonies. I mean, you know you can't trust him. And that impression gets turned on its head multiple times within the same movie. So it, it just, it all sets up great. It sets up for a narrative bit of storytelling that was so creative. And within a movie that is still rather raw in the way that it's presented, with the writing, with the way it's shot, it, it's more polished than what you got with Following, but it still has a certain raw element to it. I mean, it was which works. It was distributed by New Market Films. I mean, this was still not a major, majorly produced film here that that Nolan had with in this a lot of way, and everything. In a lot of ways, it was his coming out party in a way that he knew. I mean, everybody had to know when you knew what was coming and put into this and the way it was coming together. Oh my goodness, this is going to land. And it really did. This was one of those that was a word of mouth movie. I don't know what it did at the box office. I can't imagine it did all that well. But it's one of those that when it came out, you, we just saw this memento. You got to see it. But it was probably on, you know, back when you could have and share a DVD. I got this copy of DVD. You got to watch this this weekend. And I think that's where the word of mouth really came so that when his next one came around, this is that Nolan guy. He did the backwards memento movie. Everybody was off to see it. And this was two years later, and it was the first majorly produced film. Warner Brothers distributed it domestically and in North America, and then Summit was doing it on on a more international level. Bigger names in the cast as well for Insomnia, which came in 2002. And quick little fact, Insomnia is the last R-rated Nolan film until the one that is coming next week, Oppenheimer. We'll get to that later. But Insomnia came along in 2002, Al Pacino, Robin Williams, Hillary Swank. Two Oscar winners. Three Oscar winners. Three Oscar winners, all at the center of that. And by the way, it's the only film that Nolan has directed that he did not write or co-write in some way. And it's also a remake of a Norwegian film from 1997. Yeah, this is a movie that is, um, there's elements that are there. You could tell he didn't write it. It's layered, but it's only layered to a point. And Nolan movies, all of them that he's ever written, are like the biggest onion you've ever tried to peel. But this is one that I remember when it first came out. This is when, uh, in real life, it turns out too, unfortunately, Robin Williams was kind of going through uh, a dark phase. You had a bunch of darker movies, whether it was Death to Smoochie, One Hour Photo, and Insomnia, where we did say spoilers, and this isn't really a surprise. You kind of know going in, Robin Williams plays the bad guy. And what made it really terrifying is that Robin Williams, you know, is such a manic guy, but his character is very, very subdued. And you know that, you know, that manic energy, that rage, if it turns to that, is right under the surface. It's at such an iceberg that you're only seeing such a tiny bit, but you know the rest of it is there. Um, that character itself was amazing. Amazing, dark, and a killer, and too. It, and it, unfortunately, the, just the isolation of the setting of the movie in Alaska where the sun never sets, uh, which was part of the title, of course, that uh, De Niro or uh, Al Pacino's character just couldn't get to sleep at all. He's just getting more and more run down. But that turned uh, Robin Williams back to alcohol, and that was a, a problem for him. But uh, but the uh, but the subject Al Pacino as far as the manner, is really good too. Oh in the yeah, movie he's good in well. everything. Yeah, because he's 
like it's not as simple as protagonist and antagonist because you can tell that the protagonist here, Al Pacino, he's a complicated individual. There are some problems from his police department in Los Angeles that he is carrying with him into this murder investigation that he and a partner of his are called into. And those issues then rise to the forefront with how they handle this this murder that they are trying to help solve in Alaska. And while they're also dealing with being put under some serious pressure on an internal investigation of their department there, and all of that leads into a, a big collision of issues that take place within the movie. And, of course, it is kind of a fun, not really a gimmick, but if you've ever been way, way north like Alaska is in those summer months, that sun doesn't really ever set. I've experienced this, actually. I have not been there. It doesn't get, like, dark, dark. It doesn't stay noon bright either, but it might be, I don't know, like a late afternoon the sun's getting low, and that's as low as it gets, and it starts going right back up. So uh, Al Pacino's character is having a hard time, can't sleep. He's putting stuff over the windows. It can't work. Well, when you can't sleep and you're not getting that REM, you start to mentally slide and start to come apart. So here's a guy that already comes in as well-rested as he's going to be and already very fractured, let's put it that way, and it only gets worse and worse and worse. And so he's trying to do the right thing, or is he? And you've got this non-manic Robin Williams. You've got Hillary Swank, the do-good cop, who's um, trying to be the, the compass point in the right way. And Al Pacino's skilled, but um, where are his allegiances going to lie? Yes. Yeah. Very layered film in a yes. lot of ways. Very sudden ending, I feel like, with, with that movie. You have to kind of be ready for that because there's not a whole lot after the climax. That That's comes true. With it. For the structure, the way the film is made, it's not all that Nolan-esque, but the way that it is made, and you could see his fingerprints over where some of the direction would come in, absolutely. It, yes. You could see some of what has come before, and once we go past this, you're going to see some of those come up again, Those they're what are becoming now Nolan-esque qualities. So it was early in 2003 that Warner Brothers officially hired Christopher Nolan for his next project. And that would be the beginning of maybe the defining movies of his career on a really big commercial standpoint as far as movies that people really know him for. And that would be the Dark Knight trilogy, which began with Batman Begins in 2005, The Dark Knight in 2008, and The Dark Knight Rises in 2012. Batman had pretty much been mothballed for... Well, since 97, yeah. the Batman and Robin fiasco, that was eight years earlier, more or less, when it released, came out. Yes. And it just, it killed the franchise. And comic book movies were trying, I mean, now it's funny you say it because they're everywhere. They couldn't get a good one made back then. And when they did, it was a rarity. And they had something something going with the Batman franchise until, it's not Clooney's fault, it's well, that, not everybody's fault. But then there was X-Men. And then there was Spider-Man. But even the first X-Men was kind of a swing and a foul tip. But that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. But this was one where I heard they're making another Batman movie. Eh, here was the great gamble that is behind the scenes that doesn't really get talked about that much. Christopher Nolan had already had his coming out party, and he'd had some great critical reviews. And he had projects that he had already on the back burner that we're going to get to. He wanted to make those movies, and he kind of wanted to do something like what George Lucas did with Empire Strikes Back. If we can make this movie and it'll be a hit, and he knew it would be because it was a sequel to one of the biggest movies ever, I'm independent. I can do what I want to do, and I can call my own shots, but I have to play by the rules just this time so I can get it done. Christopher Nolan, I'll resurrect your Batman-withered franchise 
and that'll get me funding and that'll get me clout so I can make these other movies that we're going to get to to get done. So yes. we're going to put them together, the whole Dark Knight trilogy, starting where the Batman begins. And I'll tell you, first time in the movie theater, I might have been seeing one of the Lord of the Rings movies, and I think that was the first time I saw the first trailer for any footage of Batman Begins, and I was thinking, this might actually be good. It's different. Because Nolan said he wanted a world featuring Batman that was more grounded. Yes. That it had a realism to it that was contemporary, rather than more of the style-based stuff. He felt that the previous movies really were all about style, not as much about drama. And actually, he said, you'll like this, he said that some of his inspiration was Richard Donner's Superman from 1978. He treated it it with reverence. And and, and seeing character development happening here with Batman, that Batman's not just this completed individual or working through just things within the movie. There's bigger stuff that he's trying to grapple with and deal with, and that became the basis for not just Batman Begins, but for the entire Dark Knight trilogy as his journey would play out. It was very much as if you took, say, some big mogul magnet, whether it was an Elon Musk or a Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates, if they ran some big mega-billion, trillion-dollar company and decided to become a vigilante at night how, with unlimited resources, how would that go? And this is pretty much how that would go. It's very internalized, but it's not so moody. I mean, it would get a little bit moody, but it wasn't as dour as, say, some of the Tim Burton eras. And it certainly wasn't that homage to the 60s Batman that you got with the Schumacher era. It was, I don't know if we're ever going to see a better Batman movie. And that includes the most recent The Batman. Which, which was I, really Which was good. also really, really good. But I, do, I, I don't know. Batman Begins, and you didn't even see Batman until roughly halfway through the movie, but you you know the backstory, but this was a different sort of a backstory that you've ever seen in a Batman movie, uh, and it really took a lot of its inspiration from where the comic book fans really dwell, the comic books, and going and taking- Even though Nolan hadn't read them much. He hadn't read them, but a lot of these came from, uh, were inspired at the very least from some of the graphic novels that were there, whether it's Batman Year One, uh, the, the, the Long Halloween, I think might have had a little something to do with that too. The Man Who Falls was kind of where he started, yeah. but then Long Halloween was also one that was looked at. Um, Dark Victory, I think, had a little bit of, of influence on the movies as they went, but Again, using some creative narrative storytelling, that's where Batman Begins was the launching pad because you have Bruce Wayne going to the League of Shadows and becoming the the basis, the baseline for what became Batman and his principles going up against those of the League of Shadows. But then you also see Bruce Wayne's journey to that point, of course, the murder of his parents, but then even beyond that with seeing Gotham's corruption and how that impacted Bruce's life directly, how he then went up against the League of Shadows directly as a result of it, his relationship with Rachel Dawes, who was a character created for this, I think had been inspired by other characters, but you see his relationship with her and how that's established, him and Alfred, Alfred playing such a big role with Michael Caine being brought on, who would become a Nolan regular as a result of this. But then layering in people like Commissioner Gordon as well, Scarecrow, Ra's al Ghul. You see all of those characters. And even Lucius Fox. Lucius Fox. And then the crime world of Gotham City being really featured prominently, too. And how all those things threaded together into what was a really, really good movie. I mean, people liked Batman Begins quite a bit. And it was a good starting point. But it set the stage, much like Star Wars set the stage for maybe an even better installment that followed after with the second one, The Dark Knight. When you get talent 
surrounding a project. And right now, let's just talk acting talent. You knew this wasn't going to be another run of the money, I want a paycheck. You're getting those people that are looking with prestige. You got Morgan Freeman getting involved in this, Michael Caine getting involved in this, and even up-and-coming actresses at this point um, uh, all over the Katie Holmes. Yes, thank you. Katie Holmes, for some reason, I'm having a mental block with the names. These were people that were, I mean, they're well-established, and they were only doing the good stuff, or they were on their way up, and they were thrilled to get the good stuff. And uh, you've got a guy like Christian Bale who was really, I mean, he was a kid actor, kind of disappeared for a while, came back with a force. American Psycho really kind of put him on the map, and he'd done some great work leading up to that. Um, was The Machinist came out just before this? Am I getting my timeline uh, right? I'm Where not he had sure. To, he had to lose like 100 pounds to get down to like a buck 30 or something. That was 2004, so just before. So just before. So yep. he's getting to bulk up from basically looking like a withered away Holocaust survivor to becoming Batman. And this is amazing talent, and they weren't going to come on board unless they knew what was on the page. Oh, 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 is really good. So we won't spend too much time on The Dark Knight. We have a whole episode on it that you can go back to in the archives. But I'll say this. The Dark Knight, I think part of the brilliance in it, beyond just how good of a film it was and Heath Ledger's incredible performance and all that came with it, was that The Dark Knight took, I think... What had already been established with Batman Begins, what had been established with the comic book superhero story, and about midway through the movie, twists it on its head thanks to the Joker and the chaos that the Joker brings through the whole movie. Whether it's the music or the storytelling, the whole movie just takes an enormous, enormous turn midway through where you think, all right, Batman... Commissioner Gordon and Harvey Dent, they are the big three, and they are tackling Gotham's crime problem one issue at a time, and it's all going swimmingly. And then it's not, and everything just starts to collapse. Their world collapses in on them. There is a high cost that comes with it, and it's a cost that is paid by the end of the movie. It's one of those where I think The Dark Knight would have even worked if it wasn't a comic book movie. It just so happens to have some iconic good guys and bad guys, Batman and the Joker and Two-Face and others. Um, But wow, what a crime movie. It's really what it is. It's a crime thriller. It's almost like Heat, but if De Niro and Pacino, who are both in that movie with Val Kilmer, if they happen to be wearing masks and makeup and so forth, it's just that good. And uh, what an amazing movie. And, of course, you had to pull out the performance of the Joker. And it seems like every time he gets on the big screen, there's something special about that character. But the way that he gets portrayed, whether it's Jack Nicholson, which really kind of overshadowed everything in the first 89 Batman movie. Now you've got Heath Ledger's version, which won the Oscar, by the way, to, I believe, if I'm wrong, is the only comic book performance that ever won an Oscar for main or supporting actor or actress. I think. I could be wrong. But I think that was the only one. And it certainly was the first. Did that, Joaquin Phoenix win then for you're right. his own performance you're right. of Joker? Also Joker. Thank so you for illustrating my point. So it was the first one then. It was yeah. the first. So thank you for even making my point even better. Yes. So that, I mean, it really set the bar. So there's no way you could possibly top that. And I think we all knew it when we went in to see The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, what, about four years later? It was four years later. Nolan w- actually was a little hesitant about doing Batman again after what they had done with the Dark Knight but how rare is this that we get a conclusion to a superhero based story where the definitive conclusion this was a full conclusion I mean there there's of course a little bit of open-endedness left on the end with Robin but it wasn't as if you're expecting a movie to come from it it was just it was a passing of the torch moment that you get but the Dark Knight Rises 
went even bigger, I think, in scale. This was like an epic superhero movie. Big scale, big scenes. Um, Just everything felt really big with it, with the entire movie. And it might not have hit quite as strongly as The Dark Knight, but it still had its strong points that came with it, including bringing Batman slash Bruce Wayne's character arc and story arc to a full conclusion, bringing Gotham City's story arc to a conclusion with threads from both movies coming into this movie and then piecing into what it became then with Tom Hardy as Bane. And then you bring in Anne Hathaway as Catwoman and and her own role that she had in it too. It made it a true trilogy. It's one story told in three parts. That's right. Yeah. So rare that you get that where you get a full conclusion, but Nolan, I, I think he had done his due diligence when it came to doing this project and bringing it to a full finish. And, and he found a way to do it with some serious scale with the, just all of it. I, I think of the scene where the cops and Bane's army have that fight that takes place in the streets of Gotham. Like that was that's where I think like this was a huge scale kind of movie or even just the the plane heist at the very beginning. Like they went big with the scale of this and made it into again something different. You know, there is a couple things I noticed with this movie. When you do a big comic book movie, especially when it's going to be a follow-up to what has been, I mean, ridiculously successful, this is where you start running into studio interference and Warner Brothers. They've got a long track record of that. Whether there was, whether there wasn't, Nolan managed it. You know, I'm sure they wanted to go big, so the Pittsburgh Steelers football team show up as the Gotham City, whatever their team the name Rogues. is. The Rogues. Yeah. So, okay, there's that. But, I mean, they needed a scene like that to work, so I'm sure he was like, you know what, okay, we'll do it. I don't want to have X number of villains in here, but all right, we'll do it. And he kept bringing Cillian Murphy's Scarecrow character in it just because he wanted to have him in, <laughs> even if it's just a cameo. In is all, all it three was. movies. He's in he all appears, three. Yes. Really the first one, but a small part in the second and the third. But he managed that movie to be the kind of movie he wanted it to be. But the other thing that's come up has been the sound mix. And that, I, in my opinion, started with the Bane dialogue. And there's always been some kind of an issue with some of the sound. Uh, Interstellar in particular it came up with. We'll see what happens with Oppenheimer. Tenet as well. Tenet as well. But this is where it started, where he just kind of got a feel for, I can't find a better way to describe it than it's cloudy. The, the audio is a little cloudy of specific elements, whether it's an overmodulation but almost intentionally so, to the point where there was that preview scene that was the plane heist, the first, what, five minutes of the movie, and you get to hear Bane. What? What is he saying? So they remixed it. And they've done a little of that with many of these movies that have come out since. So I don't know what to say about that. If there's ever a flaw in the army, it could or a flaw in the armor, it might be that. Now, that's not to say that it didn't work to a point, but it might have worked and then went a little further than it should have and has been pulled back and maybe could get pulled back more, this is a debate question of which I do not profess to have the answer. Well, it's a good point to bring up, and I wonder if maybe it is... It's intentional. If it's influenced to an extent by being on the big screen and being presented in theaters, if that has something to do with it a little bit or catering to that in some ways. but Still, you got to be able to understand it. And when it's intentionally... That's not helping. And I that, apologize to everybody for catching that part and wondering what just happened. That, that was done intentionally. <laughs> but that's the point. You might have been able to understand what I was saying, but not really. Yeah. And it was a little blary and glary, and there were instances of that from pretty much every movie from Dark Knight Rises on. So we go from that trilogy backward. Which, to to wrap it up bit. real quick, that movie 
really brought about a transformation. And even Nolan's fingerprints continued moving forward. We'll just touch base quickly on what they try to do with the DC universe. He literally tried to get it off the ground by helping behind the scenes, really, of the what would become the Man of Steel. Yeah, he produced. He for produced Man of Steel. it. He kind of here's the map we're going to do. The problem was is that the DC universe we're going to really do is the Dark Knight, and they turned Superman into kind of a little more brooding than he needs to be. Correct. What we're hearing now is this new Superman legacy that they're working on now is going to be what Superman needs to be: big, bright, bold, you know, upbeat, optimistic. So maybe Nolan's influence on Superman was too Batman-esque, and it didn't really work. It was trying to fit the Batman mold into the Superman mold, and that didn't really work. They, the reason they work so well together is they're so different. Not to mention a director like Zack Snyder in yeah. there who had a dark touch anyway that came with some of his previous projects too. But, yeah. but again, Nolan being part of that as well just added further to that. But the interesting thing in between these Batman movies, the Dark Knight trilogy, is that you'd do a Batman movie and then he would do one he wanted to do. And then he would do the Batman movie, part two, then he would do one he really wanted to do. This is where the prestige and Inception come into play. And among people who you talk to, these movies are generally regarded among his most well-liked, among fans of his who, who like his films. Some say the prestige is the... Christopher Nolan movie, like perhaps even the best of the bunch, um, depending on who you talk to. And it's interesting. You got to you have to pay a, a note to this. About the same time that uh, The Prestige came out, there was another very similar movie, The Illusionist, yes. that came out. And that one, I mean, they're not the same movie, but they're very, very similar. And it's kind of interesting if Nolan wrote and created The Prestige, which he did, uh, where there were such close similarities. And every few years, Hollywood will have two movies that are very similar, whether it's Impact Comet movies or Volcano movies or Alien Invasion movies. You have two dueling magician movies, sort of? Yes. So Interesting. In, in keeping with what he's done, you can maybe see this trend starting to come up here. Different kind of film here. A period piece mm. from the late 1800s with rival magicians, very psychological kind of movie here, and their rivalry centered around... The way that they go back and forth, Robert Angier played by Hugh Jackman, and then Christian Bale teaming up with Nolan again just after Batman Begins as and, Alfred Borden. And you had Alfred himself coming back, Michael Caine playing a yes. significant role. Scarlett Johansson playing a key role in here. Andy Serkis is in this movie, and David Bowie appearing as well in the movie in a rather important role as Nikola Tesla, which was really interesting. An enigmatic guy from the entertainment realm playing an enigmatic guy from the science realm. And Nolan, in his movies, there's a real fascination with science, and he brings a lot of real-life concepts into his movies. Not always totally accurate, but very close in a lot of cases, or he's the, the homework's been done as far as bringing real-life concepts into a film. But The Prestige might be the most Christopher Nolan-esque movie because it is a movie about movies, Dave. It's it's not just a movie about magic. It's a movie about the filmmaking process. And you can see that where the pledge and the turn and the prestige, those are things that you don't just see that in the magic world. You see that in filmmaking yeah. as well. And you bring a rivalry into it with with these two men and the way that they just double down on going after each other throughout it. You You have a movie that is at its core – about movies here. In a way, it's also not the only one, but it's the first movie he did that I think is straight up science fiction. 
Uh, not most of it, but when you get to the MacGuffin of this thing, then it really kind of becomes yes. very science fiction. But yes. that's not really revealed to you until the end, and there's the big twist, which I won't spoil. Um, some spoilers are coming, but I'm not going to give the big ones. Um, but the again, those performances are so there, and the the way that it is all layered and it is nuanced. Do you love me? Not today. And then you find out that that's kind of a literal, in a way that we're not going to spoil. But it is. Um, I mean, what can you say about this movie other than it is straight up brilliant? Do you remember the first line from the movie? The very first line. Are you paying attention? Are you watching closely? Are you watching closely? Yeah. It's a perfect line, I think, not just for that movie, but for Christopher Nolan's yeah. movies on the whole. Are you watching closely? And you, this is one of those, this is a movie, I have to look up the runtime, but it's got to be like two and a half hours, something close to that. And it's one of those, I would not cut out one moment at all for any reason, otherwise the movie will falter because of it. And it needs every minute of that two and a half hour run or whatever it is. And honestly, if you're going to sit down and watch this, you better book five because you're going to want to watch it again right after the first one. No way. No way. And we got to watch it again. And just plan on that. Some have wondered if Christopher Nolan would ever make a James Bond movie. And he got close. It would be argued that he has come close on two occasions to making a James Bond film. One of them being 2010's Inception. And you've got Leonardo DiCaprio at the center of a tremendous cast that was put together for this. He got to team up with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Marion Cotillard for the first time. And then they would come back and join Nolan again for The Dark Knight Rises. Of course, Michael Caine was back. Really, really outstanding cast that you have for a movie about dreams and, even, and dreams within dreams. And Ken Watanabe got his part. His first part in the first Batman Begins was supposed to be bigger, and it didn't quite work out that way. It got kind of cut down. He said, well, we'll do this next one together. And he came on board and did yes. that. Cillian Murphy's there. Tom Hardy, of course, who was going to also be a part of uh, Bane and The Dark Knight Rises. So he's got his repertoire of actors. They're not in all the movies, but they if they're not in the next one, they'll be coming down the road here at some point. Um, this was my personal favorite Nolan movie. This oh, is, it's your favorite. Yeah. This movie is, you, you can almost watch it on repeat over and over and over and over again. And it is such a highbrow concept. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's science fiction because I suppose it's possible. And the way that a lot of things are depicted in the movie, it's a dreamscape. So anything can happen in a dream and that's pretty darn realistic. So even if yes. the city folds over on itself is amazing. And getting uh, Ellen Page involved in that, she's kind of the Luke Skywalker character that she's the normal person who's trying to uh, try to make kind sense. Kind of point of, the way yeah. for the very complicated central character She's uh, She's us. She represents, she represents us in the movie. She's just kind of being taken along. Well, how, what is it? Well, how? And that's her. She's us. And the way that she gets folded in, the way that we get folded in is this movie is... It's honestly perfect. This is another long one. It's close to three-hour runtime, and again, I wouldn't cut one second of it. The visuals are spectacular yes. that are in it, but at the center you have this this battle within that is going on that you see play out with, with Cobb, the, the main character, and what he is dealing with and what he brings into, into this as basically this guy who's been who's been basically on the run for many, many years linked to the death of his wife who reappears now in his dreams and in many ways he self-sabotages what he tries to do as a, a mind thief or in this case somebody who's trying to plant an idea in somebody's mind in order to be able to get himself his ticket home his way back to 
his children. But he complicates it by getting in his own way thanks to his past and the things he's done. And what you have is all of this set on these grand scales within dreams, which is the crazy thing. The ways that the rules work in this movie, and its I'll go a step further than that. The way a story works is it has been said that the audience will follow you for one leap. And if you try to second leap, the audience is not going to come with you because you've already taken that first leap. There is such a grand one leap here. And they, while I said Nolan isn't going to hold your hand, he holds your hand enough to the point just to kind of set up the rules. Once you understand how the rules of this work, a dream within a dream and all of this, now it's like setting up the dominoes and now they start to fall. And now that you understand the rules, he's not holding your hand anymore. You're watching this. It's almost a runaway train, and I mean that literally, um, getting interesting. And the way he shows each dream stage has got its own look and its own maybe color scheme. And so you kind of know when you're flipping from one thing to the next that you are flipping from one dream to the next and who the dreamer is and how fast things are moving. Against a story about a story. Yeah, when when the dominoes really start falling at the end and there's so much happening in each level of the dream, you just don't feel lost. You're along for the ride and you're in and you're getting it and you're picking it up. And when it finally comes to the end, rarely do you watch a movie where it's just like, oh, the catharsis literally washing over you. And you just, I'm just drenched. You almost want to wring out your own arm and just let the movie rinse out of you because it has been an adventure. Very rare do you get that and you do with Inception. And you get an ending that launched, yes. I don't know how many discussions on the internet about the nature of it. And Is the dream over or is it all a dream? Yeah, exactly. And that's, you said what he thinks it is, <laughs> and you're free to have your own debate. Yeah. And I think mine is the correct answer, and I'm sure everyone does. I, I think. But that's part of the fun. Yeah. You're never going to get that full answer. What did Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation? You're never going to know, and that's something that's kind of fun that'll push that movie forever because you're never really going to truly know. So speaking of science fiction, you talked about that a little bit earlier. Nolan really dove into science fiction in a big way with Interstellar, which came along in 2014. His own version of 2001 A Space Odyssey is how people kind of treated it going in. It was big. It was grand. It was staggering to watch. I went to a movie theater that was showing it in 70mm IMAX, and it was one of the coolest movie-going experiences I have ever had, just to see it on that kind of scale. And this story of this, this space traveler essentially is what he becomes – in Matthew McConaughey and his character Coop, who's at the center of this bid to save Earth as they are in the midst of the, all kinds of issues that have come with crop shortages and all kinds of problems with the climate of Earth going bad. And then you have in the midst of this all a guy who's trying to help save it, but at the same time is trying to get back to his kids. Well, at the same time, I think uh, Michael Caine's character, back again, has the line that kind of sets up the plot of the movie. It wasn't man's job to save Earth. It was our job to leave it. So the whole idea is we're going to get off this planet and we've got astronauts we've sent out to these hopeful possible landing spots. And so we need to check which one is going to be the one that might be the place where we're going to emigrate from Earth and start over again on this other planet. But it takes a couple of turns as well. It's not quite as straightforward as that. And it also gets definitely into the realm of 
hugely science fiction beyond just the space travel and all of that, which is largely based as best as we understand interstellar and the way black holes work and singularities and so forth. But There's it's some also, tremendous science thrown yes, into it, yes. but it is science fiction, though, too. It is. It really takes a turn to become science fiction eventually. Yes. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it again, but it is really one of those. I will say this. While I appreciated the movie and I did enjoy the movie, it might be my least favorite of the Nolan movies. Part of it was there were moments that the way it was done, the visuals kind of represented the audio issues where it was just call it cloudy. And it was kind of hard to understand exactly what's going on, especially on first viewing. I've learned to appreciate it a little more on repeat viewings. But the first one I walked out, I didn't feel like that great, amazing catharsis after Inception. Interstellar was kind of... It was okay. You knew he wasn't going to follow up Inception with one to beat it, and he didn't. But it was, I'm not saying I don't like it. I do like it. It's just I didn't love it. I've seen it, I don't know, five times, six times maybe. Um, Maybe seen it on a bigger, bigger screen. It was made to be seen on an IMAX screen, and I didn't get that. But um, I don't know. It's. um, I guess my jury in some ways is still somewhat out. It was like a Cold Stone Creamery. It was a like it but not love it. Okay. Size scoop. The grand scale made it made it a really cool experience. I thought the music. By the way, speaking of the music, music is a big part of these movies that we've talked about to this point and are still to be talked about. And Hans Zimmer is at the center of a lot of them. A lot of Nolan's projects, at least until recently, have had Hans Zimmer as part of them with the music. He teamed up with James Newton Howard for the first two of the Batman movies that they did together. But um, Hans Zimmer has been in it with him since then with Inception and then with Interstellar, Dunkirk as well. And that's where the journey pretty much wrapped up for them, at least to this point, as far as projects they've done. But a collaboration that's been really, really good, and, and you see that come through Interstellar too with the music that he puts to it and the grand scale of of the music alongside the visuals. So This is one where you and I are going to vary in our opinions. That was part of the problem for me. It's very gothic sounding because it's most, the biggest, I think the instrument front and center is a pipe organ, you know, which kind of gives you a certain idea that I don't think matched with the story to match with the visuals for what you're seeing. I think, you know, the soundtrack, and I don't mean the classical music from 2001, but I mean that almost, I don't mean the choir singing notes that are off pitch from one another to kind of give you that unsteady feeling, but there's, I don't know the best way to describe it other than to say cold. It needed to be cold. And I like that that pipe organ kind of came across as cold, but it needed to be something more mechanical than that. So pipe organ wouldn't have been what I chose. So the visuals are one thing. The music score was another thing. There were some audio issues were another thing. I like the story elements. I like the way that it went, uh, but it, it was, it was a like it, not love it. And that was part of it. And that was, in my opinion, it was a good step, but there was a stumble. It was a good run, good race, but there was a stumble. Says I, I still liked it a lot. I still liked it a lot. And another thing with the sound was uh, time is another theme that comes up a lot in these movies. We, we've talked about that before. It certainly came up in Inception. Interstellar brings it out in a whole new way with the concept of black holes and what they do to time. And you hear that through the sound. And through the score, too, with a ticking of a clock. Especially during one scene on one of the planets, you really get that sense because time is of the essence and it helps create a serious amount of tension when that element gets thrown into with the way that the sound was. So that was 2014 with Interstellar. 
And then it set up 2017 when Nolan got into a historical piece and a historical war film for the first time with a movie that made a good run at winning Best Picture, and that was Dunkirk. Talking about a sound core, we'll just jump right into the soundtrack of it with the score, and you had that ticking sound that was much more prominent in this movie, which you kind of realize at the end, um, it's not a big twist really, so it's probably one we probably can give away, that it's really generally kind of looking at three different stories, more or less. And you start to realize that they're being shown out of sequence, but they're starting to come together, and you're starting to see how it goes. And that ticking clock, soundtrack-wise, is there to kind of help tie it together when it kind of, not a it's a reveal, I would say, at the end of the movie, you realize, oh, this is happening before this, and then that's after that. And it it just sort of comes together. So this movie takes the idea of stories from war and and those who were part of it and puts it into this film where you have a historical event in the evacuation of Dunkirk, which was a dark moment in World War II. This was 1940. The Allies are on the run through France. Well, and and even furthermore, those aren't familiar. This was the first invasion of Europe, so to speak, but by the British forces generally. They get to landfall in uh, Dunkirk, France, and they were almost immediately surrounded and basically kicked off France. There was nowhere to go. Well, how do these guys, other than just marching into the ocean and swimming, how do you get these guys out without going into more of the details than that? That's pretty much what Dunkirk was, and that's what this movie is. And detailing much more nuanced, individual, not so broad scope, but much more like Saving Private Ryan was about a very small group of soldiers in the middle of something much bigger. That's kind of the way that this is presented. Yeah, and so you have three stories going on concurrently here. But by concurrently, they're all on different time frames. On land, which is where you have a collection of these young soldiers who are there. Among them, by the way, Harry Styles, as Mm -hmm. many people knew going into the movie. It's taking place in one week. Then you have a story that's going on on the water. And that's taking place over one day with one of the pleasure boats that was coming. The the people's navy the civilian navy that came to help the evacuation random people that had a boat they yes. went to help get these soldiers off dunkirk and then you have in the air over one hour those who are flying in to try to help from the raf the royal air force and among them tom hardy in another performance where his eyes much like with bane are telling the story as much as anything and with what he's doing this movie emotionally really resonated with me the first time I watched it. There are two scenes in the movie that just really emotionally gave me goosebumps and absolute chills. I'm honestly, right now, getting a, thinking about yeah. one of the scenes. When you have um, Kenneth Branagh, who is this naval officer who's looking out to the water, and when he first sees the civilian boats arriving, and Armada. then the mu- yeah, and the music hits Hans Zimmer again. When the music hits there, oh man, the emotions that come with that just really, really strike home. I remember when I was watching the movie, you almost tear up a little bit in that moment because the tension prior to that in the movie is so strung tightly. It's one problem to another to another that you have going on here that's happened to that point. And then this comes. And then at the very end, when Tom Hardy's um, uh, uh, guy in the air, who I suddenly forgot his name there for a moment. Um, See, I've been doing that all podcast. Barrier. He, yeah. he, when he lands his plane, and you get the visual that's there along with the music, amazing visuals that they got in the movie with, with doing this. And they used some authentic airplanes as well to be able to make this happen. It was... It was a masterful movie on a lot of levels and telling a story that 
again, is is not necessarily totally accurate as like this was all going on, but Dunkirk itself, like telling that story through, again, stories like it that would have taken place within it. Yeah, microcosm of something bigger. It's uh, it is an incredible piece of war filmmaking. You know, it's. It, whatever the stumble was for Interstellar, Dunkirk got it back, and they got it right. And I really, really like Dunkirk. As complicated a story, although well told, as Interstellar was, and as much as I don't have a big problem with the story from Interstellar, this was a lot more basic. It's not that complicated, but at the same time, it's definitely nuanced. It's definitely layered. But it's a good layering of a fairly or three fairly simple stories. The most convoluted, or not convoluted, but uh, interesting part, not a gimmick-wise, is when you realize that it's not not happening simultaneously. You're cutting from one event that's happening at the same time. You realize that the time sink is kind of out and it kind of zips back together. So that now it's all happening at the same time at the end. And it's, oh, 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 okay. And that gives you a nice kind of catharsis. But the movie, everything Interstellar wasn't from a movie standpoint, Dunkirk was. And it feels like you can't emotionally breathe through much of the movie until yeah. the very end. It feels like as the characters finally rest, you finally rest. Well, even as that armada comes and he knows they're saved, then you've got that one plane that's coming in that could drop a bomb, could hit any one of us. It's not going to take us all out, but who of us on the beach trying to hopefully get off is not going to be the ones to get on this armada that's right there only to finally get saved by an out-of-fuel fighter fighter plane flown by Tom Hardy's character and finally pretty much everybody's saved. It's a great movie, well worth checking out, and it, it should have been up on that Oscar list. So we hit the pandemic then, and that impacted the release of Nolan's most recent movie leading into Oppenheimer, which was Tenet, which he still went ahead and had released in 2020 amidst the pandemic. It was one of the first movies, thinking back on it just a few years ago, I mean, this was a big deal at the time. We talked about it on the podcast. This was a big deal that they were trying to get this movie put out there despite the pandemic going well, we need on. To, we need to be clear on who they is because there's fallout from this. Yes. Um, this was another Warner Brothers. This was the last movie that he had done for Warner Brothers. And this was one where Warner Brothers, this is when streaming was becoming a new thing now. People aren't going to the theaters, but we're going to start up a brand new streaming service and this is going to be the first movie to come out so you'll buy our streaming service and blah, blah, blah. Nolan didn't want that. This needs to be a movie that's on the big screen, and they kind of met him halfway. It kind of did both simultaneously. You could stream it, or you could go to the theaters where they were open. And for those of you that go back to the early COVID days, it was just a weird time. So trying to get movies to come out, this was the first one that did, summer of 2020. And it was, what, maybe nine months after COVID got going, maybe about less than that when it really got going for real. But all that aside, it kind of blew up the really fruity relationship between Nolan and Warner Brothers to the point where Nolan said, I'm done. I'm walking. Warner Brothers today in 2023, the management, the ownership after the Warner Brothers Discovery merger, it's a whole different camp now. The people that were involved in that, they're out, they're gone. And the new camp, they want Nolan back in a big way. We'll see how things are going to go with Universal putting out Oppenheimer. But it sounds like they're like, hey, whatever you want to do, come to Universal. And that's yeah. what's happening. That'll be an interesting behind-the-scenes story to watch unfold over the years to come. But it is worth bringing up. But now turning attention to Tenet itself as a movie, uh, this was another one. I've only seen it twice, and I need to see it more because this is one of those movies where it's kind of like Memento in a way that you need to see it twice in a row immediately. 
Um, and I didn't. I got to see it once in the th- not in the theater. I saw it on uh, on disc when I got it, and I saw it again on disc. I've never seen it on the big screen because that was in the middle of COVID. Um, but it was one of those where I really liked it. And when things started to come together, it was one of those where I felt a little bit of hand-holding wouldn't have helped. But at the same time, I felt like I kind of needed it because when all of these realizations are coming around at the end, to me, they weren't as impactful because I wasn't really picking up on it the first time. So it meant less than it probably should have meant because I wasn't fully grasping the first go around. So the second go around, because it does involve a lot of time bending, was interesting. Yes, the use of time and the concepts that get, that they get into in this movie, they are highly complex, and that makes Tenet, it, it is a brain bender. I, I yes. think somebody said, as far as complexity, this is the most Christopher Nolan, Christopher Nolan movie, has been said many times over, and, and it's true. Like As I, involved as Inception was on this level, this is just a little bit more. Yeah, I thought... As far as efforts go, this is the one that if I was to say is one that I didn't like quite as much, it would be Tenet. I okay. still liked it. I still liked Tenet, and I like that that it went for something that was different. But at the same time, it didn't quite hit the same way for me, too, because it does get very complex. Yes. And, and again, the sound mixing was a bit of an issue again yeah. with this movie, too. But, but I like John David Washington a lot as the protagonist because... We're, we're all building toward one of the core central themes that has come through every Nolan movie and is going to be a big part of Oppenheimer, too. And it's funny because John David Washington's protagonist is the living embodiment of this concept that we're going to get into. But Robert Pattinson's good. Elizabeth Debicki is really good. He brings back Michael Caine again of course. in a tiny, tiny role. And then Kenneth Branagh is back in there again as well. It It's a really cool, complex movie. It's, again, got a little bit of a James Bond type of flavor to yeah. it, but with a lot of big concepts thrown in as far as the way that all of this works out and makes sense. But but it's a very, very complex movie, though, too. And it, it does take some watching to really get figured out the ideas of going back through time in the way that the characters do and the way that it all sets up the the big central problem. The thing with with Tenet, and I don't disagree with you saying it's your least favorite. It's maybe my second least favorite, but I like it. I like it a lot better than Interstellar. I still like it, too. I do like it. I like it better than Interstellar, but I feel like I have to work for it even, what, three years after I saw it because I've got it down, but I don't have it nailed down you know i need to see it a few more times and i saw i don't remember how far apart probably roughly a year apart from the first viewing to the second viewing i almost probably just need to sit down and say all right i'm sick this weekend boom boom and watch it twice in a row maybe then all of it will kind of settle in a little bit better so i still feel like there's pieces floating in the air for me that haven't quite settled nicely onto the battlefield so to speak but i do highly recommend it but it's one of those where you need to pay attention and if you're a movie goer person where you're on your phone you're doing this you're talking to that guy you're you know then you're not going to get this movie don't even bother same with inception you need to sit down and watch it because if you miss the first five minutes you're out and again i think the bummer of it was that it was released when it was released because people didn't get to see it on the same kind of wide scale well and even then there's i mean we're we certainly are huge proponents of going to see it on the big screen but I saw it on the small screen, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm sure I would have enjoyed it more in a better presentation like that. But it doesn't, you know, you're never going to see it the right way. But you can still certainly see it, and you can certainly.
certainly get it and love it for what it is, but you'll love it even more. Some cool action sequences yeah. there of like, how did they make that happen? How yeah. did they do that kind of stuff that you get from that movie? Much like Inception, same way. When Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fighting in like almost zero gravity, you're like, how is this happening right now? And here's something we have to pay a little quick, just a quick little uh, tribute to, which we've said before. Most, not all, but most of those uh, effect scenes were done in camera, which means it was not a special effect. Yeah, where you got the the battle in the hallway that's rotating in Inception, they figured the way to make them float through the the thing was put them on a gimbal that's going the long way. So the end of the hall is what's really up. So they're hiding the wires with their very own bodies. They didn't have to do special effects to do it, and they're already free floating through this hallway because they're actually dangling down, and the and the ceiling and walls are actually all the walls in real life around them. It was brilliant. That was not one shot of special effects, and Tenant with all the time bending. There are some exceptions to this, but most of it was done in camera. Like the gigantic plane crashing into the airport, which I love that Robert Pattinson's character says that part maybe slightly more dramatic, where it's like, yeah, that's kind of what we're here for is, is for all of that. So we've got Oppenheimer that's coming out next week, and this is the first biopic that Nolan is doing, and it's on J. Robert Oppenheimer, as we've talked about before. But so, so those that don't know... Tell me the story. What is what is this about? Well, he is the guy who was at the center of the creation of the atomic bomb, one of the main people at the center of creating the bomb in the midst of World War II. The Manhattan and, Project. Yeah, and the Manhattan Project and working with General Leslie Groves. J. Robert Oppenheimer was the scientist at the center of making it go, amongst many scientists who did. But he is... An extremely complicated figure as well, and we're we're going to see that throughout the movie with his relationships, the people he's with. This is a rated R movie. It's the first time in two decades that a Nolan movie is rated R. And one of the things I like about his movies so much is that they are relatively accessible. Like, with some of these big directors, I, I think of Martin Scorsese, and I think of Quentin Tarantino even to this extent too, their movies are, can be very tremendous to watch. They also have a hard edge to them at times, too, that I think would be a turnoff for some people. And depending on the movie, that's kind of how I feel sometimes regarding their movies. Nolan, it's been almost exclusively PG-13, with the exception of going back to his very earliest films where they were rated R. This is rated R. And apparently it's rated R. There's sexuality and nudity included in this so there's a little bit of a heads up if you are thinking of going to the movie this might be a little bit different than some of his movies that he's done in the past but this is going to have a little bit of a harder edge to it apparently and he j robert oppenheimer had some complicated relationships in his life because he was a very complicated individual well you know to go back to what the atomic bomb was all about we knew at the time going through world war ii the japanese held a whole bunch of islands we weren't going to be able to strike japan the way we needed to the mainland anyway until Plus, we started there was thought that the nazis may be developing an yeah. atomic device as well so there was a race essentially yes. that was going on well and the we even at that time the soviets were our allies but they were unsteady allies and they were already clearly developing atomic weaponry so there was that too we we knew we needed to develop this. This was the next thing. 
uh, and that was going to save lives, but it was also going to be the big deterrent. We, they were going to have their big ones one way or the other, so we needed one too. But here was this guy that came out, and I'm paraphrasing, I've become the destroyer of worlds, and this was a guy that he didn't want that. He knew what he needed to do, but it's not necessarily what he wanted to do. And even his own project, once this was done... But he also kind of reveled in his project, though, too. To he a did. certain extent, he kind of did with the celebrity that came with it and yeah. the attention and stuff. And But by the time it was over, he was basically kicked off of his own project and he was the father of the atomic weapon who didn't really want to have anything to do with it especially once it was over and what became persona non grata in that community plus he had ties to communism as well, well and that was very very complicated with yeah. him too but it's this a, was just before the red scare but it's a story dave that i think is is perfectly suited for christopher nolan to yeah. be telling because there's a there's a very common thread through all of his movies and it's movies that are about people who are trying to direct their own narrative and their own lives. And it's in the midst of somebody who's telling a narrative story about somebody who's trying to control their narrative and how that all goes. You can look at that through every single movie of his and you can find that whether it's following a guy who feels like it's okay to follow people around and just just kind of follow them around he's not necessarily stalking them he just kind of follows them for a while it's like what's the worst that could happen here well something happens as a result of that you have a guy in memento who is trying to get revenge for his wife's murder and going about it as he best sees fit while dealing with a pretty serious problem that he's dealing with and one that leaves him vulnerable to manipulation you have insomnia and a corrupt cop who takes the law into his own hands and who ends up having to face that up. You have Batman who takes the law into his own hands and sees justice on his own terms and he goes up against complications with that. In The Prestige, you have two guys who are both trying to exact revenge on each other and trying to fight against each other while entertaining and making entertainment happen even if other people end up paying the price alongside of them. You have Inception with a guy who is trying to get back home and who is trying to do things his own way when it comes to handling dreams. There's one point within it where um, Arthur, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, is talking to, um, she was then Ellen Page, or her character uh, in the movie, Ariadne, about how Cobb is breaking rules that he says exist, but he often bends the rules to his own liking and doing and how that has cost him in the past. You have Interstellar where there's a guy who's trying to get back home to his family in Coop, this central character, and he's trying to do so racing against the laws of time. He's trying to save humanity, but he's trying to do it on his own terms so that he can be back with his kids again, especially his daughter Murph. And then you have Dunkirk where you have people who are in the midst of a time where they can't control anything. They have no control over it whatsoever, and they are fighting against that all throughout the movie. And then, like I said, Tenet, you have this central character in there, the protagonist, who you discover over time he's the protagonist because there, there's a very specific reason to that that's revealed at the end of the movie. But he himself is figuring out that he is in control of that as the movie is playing out, and he's kind of trying to make this happen on his own terms when in reality he's the one setting the terms, but he doesn't figure that out until the end. And then you have J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's creating this destructive nuclear force, and he's trying to do it on his own terms, and being the complicated individual that he is, of course, that was a big part 
of the history there. You see that thread? I mean, it's an amazing thread that exists through all of those movies, and it creates the narrative landscape that we get with these movies and makes it extra compelling. Makes you wonder if uh, if Nolan has actually got a message to say about that, or it's just something that attracts him. I think it's some of both. Just seeing interviews that he's done and reading stuff that he's done, I, I think that's that's what brings it into. There's some bigger discussions that come from it then of who's got control here. Maybe that's really what's going control. on behind the scenes with him and Warner Brothers and Universal. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, perhaps you could you could stretch it to that. But there's other things too. I mean, I love that he does it on a scale that just that's all about it, it's it's film. It's filmmaking. It's not digital. This is about film. This is about let's do it on a on a really kind of real scale here. Let's make it a real scale with the stunts, the trying to keep special effects to a minimum, doing things like that, and use, utilizing these elements in a creative way. Like I said, storytelling, using that as a, a tool, using the storytelling as a tool here. Now, there's other things that are common threads too. One of them that a lot of people have pointed out, and it's worth bringing up, is the way that female characters occasionally are used in his movies. And it's worth noting, and some people have not liked this quite as much, where there's a common theme that sometimes there's been a female character who's either been killed in the movie or has been killed prior to the movie, and it helps to sort of further the story along. Some people have not liked the way that that's come through some of these movies, and especially in his earlier movies. You can see that come through pretty often. But it's not happened quite as often in his more recent movies. It's not been as common. And if if you're going, oh, he doesn't really do much, he doesn't do well with female characters. I think there's a lot of examples to the contrary Absolutely. with that. Interstellar, you see that. You see that in Tenet with Elizabeth Debicki's character. You see that with Murph in Interstellar as well. Two like, versions. Yeah. So y- you see some examples to the contrary there with that too. But. It is a theme that is worth bringing up because it is one that is kind of like, hey, that's an odd trend that that comes up in some of these movies. One of the things – oh, please continue. But but also, it's worth saying too, these these characters who are his central characters, it's not like they're always easy protagonists to root for or that, oh, it's all about furthering their character along and getting them to an end goal. It's not always as if that end goal is necessarily a good one with some of these characters – especially looking at like Leonard Shelby, for example, or even the prestige and the way that plays out. It's not always like there's a positive end goal at the end of that. It's not even that anybody comes out truly winning. They've said sacrif- truly good. Yeah, yeah, there's that too. There's a lot of shades of gray. It's not a lot of black and white. One of the things I really like about his movies, all of them together and individually, is that a lot of times when movies are made, the way that he makes his movies, they're almost stuffy in a lot of cases. But these are generally made to be, in the most, for the most part, crowd pleasers. Uh, there's some exceptions. Well, having that, some big concepts in there, too, absolutely. or some really complex concepts. The concepts, the way they're made, a lot of times are the quite si- haughty taughty The science behind them, too, and that there's yes. some real thought to that. Even if it is sometimes science fiction, there's science behind some of that. It's it, Whether it's theory that's yet to be proven, at least there's something down on some scientific journal somewhere that says, yeah, it's possible as far as we know, but maybe not, but we'll find out. Uh, it's one of those. It's, you know, for as great a filmmaker visually that Sam Mendes is, I love the fact that Nolan takes that 
in a way, is his own version of that. But he constructs what he's filming. So he's almost a, a double version of a Sam Mendes, and I like them both for very similar reasons. Uh, I would love to see Nolan do a Batman movie for real, or a James Bond movie, sorry, for real. Yeah. Um, I would. I can't wait to see where he's going to go from here and how things will work behind the scenes. Um, this is a movie I am looking very forward to see. And by the way, just something real quick. We've talked about the special effects. The word is... There's no special effects, not one shot of it, not one frame of it in Oppenheimer. That's right. With a lot of nuclear testing footage, some of it might be, you know, legit footage. A lot of it got filmed. And if it's not, you wonder how what they did to duplicate it. And I haven't looked it up yet. I don't have any idea. But that's what they're saying. And also the first use of IMAX black and white yeah. as well, which is another. And again, those are extra elements. And I've seen the IMAX roll for for this movie. It is huge. The IMAX film roll, like it got, it got basically as extreme as it could get. But this guy, he cares about the craft of these movies quite a lot. And that's not just with putting the movie together. That's also with presenting it. I remember reading an op-ed piece that he did for it was either a journal or for a newspaper where he wrote during COVID about the importance of the film going experience. And he is one of those directors who leans heavily into the film going experience with creating movies that you've got to see on the big screen that makes it a spectacle. And again, that makes me think of the prestige because again, you have this story about these magicians, but you can so strongly parallel it into a story about filmmakers and the way that they seek to create something that's going to make the crowd wonder, how? How did this happen? I, I think of uh, Robert Angier, the great Danton, at the very end of the movie and some of the things that he says about why they did it, why they got into magic and being magicians for the thrill of the crowd, for the excitement of it all, for seeing that they made people wonder how such a thing could be done. In many ways, his films go along those same lines and are created along those same lines. And the way that he crafts not only the visuals we see, but the stories and the labyrinth of them. Sin Copy, his, his production company, I think it's fitting that there's a maze that's part of that Sin Copy image that you see. And that Inception has talk about mazes and those concepts in there. Because his movies are built the same way. They are built to be a labyrinth. They are built to be a puzzle for us to to solve. And I think with Oppenheimer, we're going to get one that is going to be a personal puzzle here with the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer and this complicated individual. And as we've seen, would it surprise you, Dave? I don't know if you know this or not. He, until it was announced that it was going to be Scorsese who was doing this, he had interest in doing a Howard Hughes movie I did until the that. aviator came along he wanted to do a howard hughes project which makes me wonder what else is on the christopher nolan desk of possible film projects for the future because there we've seen a lot of crazy stuff out there and some cool stuff but complicated individuals quite often make for fascinating movies i think of lawrence of arabia the aviator i think oppenheimer along the same lines is setting up to be something like that where you have a labyrinth that's going to be a personal labyrinth here yeah, this is one of those where uh, <laughs> nobody walks out of the movie theater going, eh. Even if you liked it or didn't like it, you are going to walk out, huh, thinking, wondering, how do they do that? What was that story about? One of the things we've talked about a lot on this is that there's so many instances of unoriginality. You are never, even if it's an adapted story, like whether it's about Oppenheimer or The Dark Knight, that is so original about it. 
whether it's a performance or direction that the story went, this man knows how to craft a movie like the Amish craft wooden furniture. It is beautifully crafted, and there's so much to it. And then when you think you've got it all, take another look at a different angle, and it's all different. And that's a big reason why he's another individual director that we've spotlighted, much like Steven Spielberg, much like Quentin Tarantino. You're getting originality with these movies, and it's originality that is best served being seen on the big screen. See it on the big screen. Go check out at the Bemidji CEC Theaters. They're right off of Highway 2 between Bemidji and Wilton. Tell Missy and crew we said hi, and tell her we'll be there soon to see Oppenheimer. Uh, it's great deals. Tuesday nights, you can get it for a lot cheaper. Even the snacks are cheaper. Five fifty. Yep. Five fifty for all the showtimes. Uh, student nights on Thursday nights. Go see them. They're right off Highway 2 between Bemidji and Wilton. And then buy it at home and watch it at home. And this is, you know, this is a guy you want to watch. And when the next project, whatever that is, comes out, just hear the word Christopher Nolan. I'm in. Well, yeah, but it's about. I don't care what it's about. It could be about mice experiments. I'm going. It'll be an awesome show, and you will be right. All right. Thanks for joining us. We. I'm going to. Are you a happy guy? Oh, I'm thrilled. Yeah. This was a. This was a fun realm to discuss. I've been excited for this one for the last few weeks. Getting to roll through the filmography but again those themes those themes are really interesting too something something occurs to me i don't think you have a picture of you actually doing what you do and as happy as you are doing it there you go i just took your picture while we were doing it (laughs) well thanks dave i'll send you a copy perfect i should get it blown up in a frame hey mom dad check it out this is me doing what i do (laughs) so i'm definitely gonna be at the theater the next two weekends which i'm excited about so whether you're doing the barbenheimer double feature going to mission impossible catching indie at the theater or whatever you've got planned for enjoy it and until next time i'm joel hoover i'm dave brooks and we will indeed see you at the movies